Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So uh, here we are, and uh, the finish line is in sight. And uh, I hope that you are still appreciative that you signed up for this retreat. Uh, It really, I've been... Uh, as I said at the very beginning, teaching this retreat for a number of years. And uh, I know the, the, the general trajectory um, that people go through, although you know, not everyone, there's variations. Some people just take to it right away or others might be in a, in a challenging space uh, uh, towards the end. But by and large, there is uh, um, an unfolding that always, uh, that never ceases to uh, move me, touch me, amaze me, um, and inspire me. That this practice really works. And uh, perhaps you've seen a little bit of settling down, maybe a bit more mindful than when you arrived, maybe a little bit less contracted than when you first got here, maybe even a sense of opening and appreciating. The interviews um, going from the groups to the individuals where you really have a chance to, uh, to be with people in their process. It's such an inspiring thing and such a, uh, a privilege to um, be able to witness people's process. Um, but as has happened most every time, I, I get so inspired by the uh, commitment and sincerity that people bring to the practice and also the, the, uh, the fruits of the practice. So the, the first talk I was looking at what we're doing here and uh, why we're doing it and how it works or, and the, the attitudes and the benefits uh, that come from it. And I want to talk tonight Um, about how one way we can think of what we're doing is this very magical alchemical formula of transforming suffering into happiness. Because that's what we're doing, or at least planting very uh, potent seeds that will sprout, if not here on the retreat, Uh, as you continue to practice uh, at home and in your lives.
Sharda uh, talked this morning about, um, in the instructions about noticing the feeling tone of experience. <clears throat> Hopefully that that registered. If not, I'll, I'll, I'm, I want to talk a bit more about it tonight because it's really the the basis of of this magical alchemy. The second foundation of mindfulness is noticing the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of experience. Those are pretty much that covers the territory of experience. This moment is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's just considered neutral. If you can think of anything else, let me know. And this is such a key component of our understanding and investigation that the Buddha gave it one very um, uh, very crucial, essential place in the mindfulness practice. He said, besides noticing the breath and the body, that's the first foundation, he said, notice this quality, the flavor of experience as you're paying attention. Then the third foundation is noticing the mind and mind states and the whole mental arena. The fourth foundation is a bit more complex. That's <coughs> different um, understandings of how, uh, how, the, how the mind can get caught and how it can be freed. Things like the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment, the uh, five... Uh, se- the six sense doors and the four noble truths and things like like that and it's a, a kind of compendium of different lists in the teachings mindfulness of the dharma but this second foundation is very accessible simple and crucial because if we pay attention with care to notice that flavor the valence of experience, we have a choice how we respond to our experience, to that flavor. If we don't pay attention, we are usually acting on automatic pilot. And as I said, um, I think in my, the last talk, I did, where I said, we usually contract around experience. That when things are unpleasant, we contract away and push it away. When it's a pleasant moment, we contract and engulf and want to possess. And when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, um, we, uh, we space out. We don't know what's going on. Those three responses are the roots of suffering, as has been mentioned by Sharda and Howie. Grasping, sometimes it's thought of as greed, sometimes attachment, all the same movement of mind, 
that wants. When the valence is unpleasant, we push away, whether it's aversion or hatred or ill will, we want to distance ourselves from it. And when it's neither pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, um, then we often get confused or space out or don't really see clearly. And that is often what is called delusion or confusion. There's some deeper understandings of delusion, which I'll get to um, later on in the talk. But those three are considered the three roots of all suffering. If we respond with grasping or attachment, aversion or delusion or confusion. Sometimes they're called greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes they're talked of as attachment, aversion, ignorance. Same thing. And that's often how we go through our day. Like it, want it. Don't like it, get rid of it. So in every moment that we respond with attachment, aversion, or ignorance, we are planting the seed for suffering. That contraction of mind and heart not only doesn't feel good in the moment, but we are also planting seeds to respond in that way in further moments. As you've probably seen, this is a very um, challenging habit to, um, to overcome. Even if you know better, okay, I got the idea. I'm not supposed to grasp. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm not supposed to grasp. Ooh, you know. I'm, not, I'm supposed to be kind. How about meta? You know. Damn it, why don't they shut up? Oh yeah, meta, 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 okay. And it just gets triggered because it's been practiced so consistently and um, continuously for most of our lives. What we're doing here is radical, learning to open to experience, as I've said. In the moment that you are mindful and you simply notice the moment, the pleasant moment as pleasant, you have a choice whether to get hooked or seduced. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy it. I'm all in favor of enjoying the pleasant moments. I wrote a book called Awakening Joy. (laughs) Believe me, I believe in enjoying the pleasant, but enjoying the pleasant, appreciating it is different than getting attached to it and wanting more. And if you can simply be here, open to the experience, be here fully with it, and when it's no longer here, to allow it to go as it does, then you are simply in the moment without that contraction of heart. And this is a moment of non-greed, or as Sharda was saying, 
letting go, (coughs) or even in its more um, full expression, a generosity of heart. In the moment that you are with an unpleasant experience and simply notice it as unpleasant, oh, this is unpleasant, wow, this, this is an intense throbbing in the knee. This is really, un- this is really unpleasant. Okay. <laughs> Acknowledging this is really unpleasant is very different than I hate this and woe is me and how can I get out of it? It's simply calling it like it is. This is unpleasant or this sadness or this fear or this confusion or this wanting or whatever it is, this is unpleasant. And when you can see it without that aversion, you are responding in a spirit of non-hatred, which as Sharda mentioned, is really a friendliness or a loving kindness. There's a kind awareness that's not struggling or making a problem. This is a very potent, profound seed that you're practicing when you are not responding with that contraction. And when the moment is neutral and you are here for it, instead of glossing over, glazing over and getting confused or saying or having it turn to, well, this is kind of boring, nothing's happening. Then the neutral turns to unpleasant very quickly. To really be here for it, for something as neutral as the breath coming in or putting your foot down in a step. Oh, this is stepping or this is breathing or this is hearing. It can be very connecting. Oh, actually present for my life. How wonderful. And maybe you've seen in these days how even something as simple as taking a breath in and out and being here for it is really a good place to be. We're hearing a sound and knowing that hearing is happening or feeling an emotion, even if it's a difficult one, or being outside and feeling nature all around. Being present for your life turns out to be, it makes the neutral into pleasant. And what we're doing when we respond in that way, we are not confused especially if we are um, having the attitude of non-delusion that also entails not taking personally your experience. We'll get to that in a little while. So here's what we're doing. In every moment that you're mindful, you are practicing not grasping at the pleasant, but just being here for it. Not pushing away the unpleasant, allowing it to be here and meeting it with a kind awareness and not getting confused or spaced out, seeing clearly what's happening. Those three, 
non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion are the sources of all happiness in this model of mind. Another way of saying that is the heart that can let go of grasping or the heart that's generous, a generous attitude, an openness, an expansiveness, or the heart that is kind, or the heart that is clear and wise, is in itself in the moment and also in future moments planting seeds for the real happiness. So suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion, or attachment, aversion, ignorance. Non-suffering or happiness, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Generosity, kindness, wisdom. In every single moment that you're mindful, you are changing the typical response that leads to suffering into happiness. Isn't that cool? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? It's so simple and yet so profound. And as you probably have seen, many of you, if not all of you, have seen over the course of the days, somehow just paying attention starts to open us up. And that is the difference between those states of suffering, of contraction, that are called akusala, or unwholesome states, akusala. All the states of suffering are, have a contraction element to them, like anger, fear, judgment, um, aggression, wanting, grasping, confusion, the mind gets rattled and very contracted and the heart gets rattled and contracted and they are suffered, suffering. All the states of well-being and happiness, love, compassion, uh, equanimity, patience, generosity, all of those states are expansive states. They're called kusala or wholesome states in that they are in themselves um, a state of well-being and they also open up and plant plant seeds for further well-being. So right there in every moment of mindfulness you are um, doing that magical alchemy and transforming. But I'd like to talk tonight since this is near uh, the end of the retreat on both a practice level and a um, um, an entering into the world level just so you can start to see how the the practice starts to carry over to our lives first the the first ones greed and non-greed grasping the second noble truth how he talked about the second noble truth the cause of suffering is wanting is grasping or craving 
clinging all the same. In the grasping, you are not experiencing the pleasantness of what it is that you're grasping. Even if you've got it right there. If the the mind says, I've got it now, but I hope it doesn't go. As soon as it's, oh my goodness, I hope it doesn't go, or how do I get more, which happens all too frequently, we're not able to enjoy right in the moment. And I, you know, some of you have heard a story I, I've shared many times. It just so uh, perfectly describes this predicament of my son, uh, Adam, who's, who's now uh, 25, he's about to be 20, uh, almost 26, when he was very young, about two and a half, and we were down at the uh, retreat in, in Yucca Valley. Uh, we were, used to teach every, every spring, and I was in the staff room with him. Um, it was snack time, and it was just Adam and, and me, and he had a, there was a big bowl of strawberries, luscious strawberries, right, which was his favorite food, and he was just stuffing them into his mouth, right? And I wanted to teach him to eat mindfully, you know, <laughs> naive as I was. And at one point, I said, Adam, just, just taste what's in your mouth. It tastes so good. He didn't want to hear any of it. And he just, he was going for the bowl and I held it out of his reach and there's this one moment he had this big strawberry in his mouth as he was reaching going, strawberry! (laughs) That's what we do. We can't even taste the strawberry if we're going, strawberry, I want more! Isn't that kind of interesting how the game is wired up like that but we get fooled again and again and again this is a cause of suffering you can't even taste the sweetness of the moment when you are caught in fearing it's going to go or planning how you can get more so how to learn this letting go. To just see, for one, see the pain in holding on. As, uh, as Joseph describes it, the second noble truth. Holding on to changing experience is like rope burn. You ever you remember Jim going down the ropes, you know, and you go down too fast? Oh, well, this is like the present moment being pulled right through you and you're trying to hold on, it hurts. So first seeing how painful it is and really being honest with yourself because the thing is it's so seductive. You know it's going to be so good if you get more. You know This portion of the dessert is good right now but the second might be even better, right? or the third, and then you get indigestion. Just as an experiment, something, especially today, as you probably have seen the planning mind once or twice. Anybody notice the planning mind today? You know, that's what happens as you, you know, the beginning of the retreat, it's, you know, 
where, what did I do at work, or did I leave the gas on, or in the middle of the retreat, it's what's for lunch, and the, the end of the retreat, it's what am I going to, right? <clears throat> just to see how this works, this is a very simple experiment. Just imagine something that you're looking forward to. If there is something that you're looking forward to beyond this retreat, okay? Just imagine that it's just outside of your reach and you can get it in a moment. But this is the experiment and I ask you to indulge me in this. Uh, it, will, it will mean sitting up, actually. I know that's a big deal for some of you, you know. <laughs> By the way, we didn't talk about etiquette in the, in the sitting hall, but um, we should probably because um, it's, it's generally considered good, to, good form to sit up. But now that you're up, now that I got you up, okay, just imagine looking forward to something you really want, okay? And it's just outside of your reach. So I'd like you to keep your butt on the cushion or chair or bench or wherever you are, and I'd like you to reach and really go for it. Come on. It's just beyond your reach, but you can almost taste it. And now you realize it's not going to happen, so I'd like you to very slowly come back and let your body feel what it's like to come back to center. Can you feel the difference in that? As tantalizing as this is, it's really painful. It's really off balance. This is where peace is. This is quite restful. This is where freedom is. And in that letting yourself rest in this moment, there's an ease and a centeredness and you also see what's going on. Oh, it's not about then, it's about now. First time I ever did a, a three month, you know, there's a, a three month retreat that we've, we've all sat and, uh, uh, at IMS uh, many times. Every, every, can you imagine people actually doing this for three months? I know that might sound really bizarre, but you can get very um, inspired and, uh, and it's a very profound thing if you have any inkling to ever sit for longer periods of time. But the first time I did one of these three-month retreats, by the third day, my mind was going, 11 weeks, <laughs> three days, 15 hours, 20 minutes to go, I'll never make it. You know, and I was really scared, actually. Fortunately, somebody gave a talk about patience just around that time. And I made a, um, an agreement with myself. Every time I lean forward, I'll just come back and see what's happening right now. And it was a very amazing, profound experience to be on that retreat. And the fear left when I realized it's all happening right now. Oh, life is happening right now. Let's be here for this. You know, it can be scary to think about being here in the moment and probably was at the, the beginning for some of you who hadn't done it before. But once you land here, it's like, 
oh, why go anyplace else? How wonderful. Wow. So that's the, the letting go of the grasping and the greed to non-greed. And even as we go into our daily lives, the full flowering of that letting go of the grasping is a generous heart. This is the first perfection that is that the Buddha would teach to lay people, even more than, I don't know if this is said this afternoon in, in the Donna talk, but even more than uh, wisdom or mindfulness or loving kindness, the Buddha would teach generosity first because it's such an accessible source of joy and it's a generosity and expansiveness of heart. And what it is, is the, the currency of our caring, of our love. Think of something in your, in your house that somebody gave you. You know, maybe a, uh, you know, a set of dishes or maybe a, your, you know, graduation or something like that. Or a sweater or some gift. Don't you think of that person every time you use that? For me, there's one cup left of a set of four cups that was uh, given to me by our good friends at our, our wedding 30 years ago. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary. And every time, it's the one last one. You know, I use it every day. It's right by my sink. A few close calls on that last one. You know, <clears throat> Ajahn Chah says... Notice the cup already broken because sooner or later it's going to break. But every time I, I, I have, I don't know if I've, I don't think I've ever used that cup without thinking of my friends Roger and Francis. Good morning. Because that's what generosity is. It's just the, the, the currency of our connection with others. And think of when you have been generous with others, either been there for them or supported them in some way. That's what deepens the connection. It's beautiful that we can do that and connect with others in that way. And it's a source of real joy. Much more than how am I going to get and how much am I going to get and can I get more than somebody else and will this make me successful and all. The real joy, uh, there's a, a line in uh, Shanti Deva. he says, um, uh, the real miracle of awakening is it lifts us above poverty into the joy of giving, to, into the wealth of giving to life. Lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. That's where the real happiness is. So, non-greed, to really practice and notice when you are in that mode of letting go, how good it feels. Letting go in our daily lives is really, um, as Sharada was saying, a movement towards simplicity. And it's discerning the difference between what we want from what we need. What we want, there's no end to it. What we need, we need very little actually. And this is not about depriving ourselves, you know, but it's about 
seeing, oh, I can do without that. Not to deprive, I'm all in favor of enjoying all, all the things that we, that we can have. But the real joy in having um, good fortune is that we can be generous as well. You know, Bill Gates is the prime example, Bill and Melinda Gates, you know, and, and I had the good fortune of, of uh, meeting them uh, in, in this last year. And ta- when, when uh, they talked about the real joy in their life, it was about that they could give so much, that that's what brought them real happiness. You know, that's, that's beautiful. So, this is the first of the magic formula, moving from grasping to generosity. Second, non-hatred, non-aversion, or developing a quality of kindness. Even when things are unpleasant. Unpleasant, don't like, dukkha, want to get away, but there's another possibility. Oh, this is unpleasant, and how you can open up and be friendly with the moment. On one, uh, one of these three, uh, three-month retreats, there, they had what was called um, Concentration Week. They don't do it uh, these days, but in the early days they did, where you sit Zen-style around the perimeter of the, um, uh, of the meditation hall, we were on that. Howie was with 1979 when we did this. <clears throat> we sat together. <clears throat> and uh, you're given one spot. That's, this is Zen. You're not fooling around anymore. And, that, <laughs> and, and that's your spot. And you're supposed to stay there, right? And I was ready to go. But it started off, there was this... Um, person, nice enough person, who had this really bad cough. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm just getting over a really bad cough, so I'm even having more compassion for, for him. But I didn't have that much compassion for him to, to start, because there I was sitting, and all of a sudden, <coughs> right? And then I'd be sitting, <coughs> and it was very, it was quite loud and unpredictable, um, <laughs> And consistent, right? And I thought, oh, this is going to be a real hell realm uh, this week. What am I going to do with this? You know, I, I've got to figure out something. A, a, a clever thought happened to come through. Okay, every time he coughs, I'm going to see if I was mindful. Okay. <laughs> yep, I was here. <laughs> no. Thank you. Come on back right now. It was great. It was fat. In fact, as the week went on, he started to get better. I felt compassion for him, but I was losing my, my ticket to mindfulness. You know? How you can really shift your relationship to most anything. So... This mindfulness, opening to the unpleasant with a friendly attitude. And there's a number of different levels of this friendliness, this metta, which we've been doing here a little bit during the retreat, 
as we've said, the, the metta complements the mindfulness. It's not its own practice, although it is its own unique practice, it infuses the mindfulness with that spirit of, of friendliness and kindness. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so the first place that we are developing metta is towards ourself because the more we can get in touch with our own goodness the more we can it frees up energy from hoping that everybody will validate us and let us know we're okay. When you know that you're okay, then you can actually be interested in how everybody else is doing and and send them, share the love that's right inside. But it takes practice for many of us, for most of us. It's one of the main um, typical obstacles in our practice and I usually think of of practice when somebody's been practicing for a while when they've turned that corner to genuinely appreciating who they are and liking themselves or even loving themselves then that starts a whole other deep deepening in practice because then you can look beyond yourself not that you have to wait for that to happen but that you can then really dive into seeing beyond the self. As a line from Dogen, the great Zen um, master from the 12th century, he says, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. So you study Buddhism and you study this mind and body, this laboratory, and the more you understand it and the more you come to terms with it, you can forget the self. And when you forget the self and being so self-conscious or preoccupied with self, then you're intimate with all things. All the barriers are removed. But this is something that we most of us have to practice. So it starts out with metta for self, or that is a key to the whole unfolding and opening to kindness, genuine, deep metta for others. It's amazing how hard it is for so many of us to really appreciate who we are. And when I started this, I mentioned this a little bit at the the beginning in one of the other talks, I really didn't like myself at all. And the thought that I could actually love myself, let alone like myself, you know, I don't think it's going to happen in this lifetime. But I want you to know it's actually possible for all of us. It's just kind of seeing through the the prison that we create for ourselves. Let me just uh, ask you, if you uh, met somebody who really understood you, who really um, uh, understood your sense of humor and had um, uh, understood your your fears and your hopes and your dreams and uh, liked your taste, had similar taste to yours, you know, how would you feel about meeting somebody who really got you? Wouldn't you 
like that? Wouldn't you enjoy that? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. (laughs) Just one. One person that really understands your fears and your hopes and your dreams. Unfortunately, they're right inside your own skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd probably be saying, where have you been all my life? (laughs) Far out. (laughs) This is a very cool person. Isn't that amazing? Einstein has this this uh, expression, we live in an optical delusion of consciousness. And from our vantage point, we don't see what others see. So here's a little meta for self exercise that I often do. I do it in the, in the, the joy course and uh, just a, a little bit of, a, a, of a, a sense of how you can do meta for self. And I arrived at this at a, at a meta retreat I was practicing for about six weeks doing loving kindness <clears throat> and the first week I was doing it for myself and I <coughs> I was you know saying the phrases and they were okay I was doing or I wasn't beating myself up giving myself a hard time but it wasn't really gushing right and just may I be safe may I be happy you know and after about three days I uh, thought of somebody who came to my mind who I knew really loved me No question about it. I didn't know why, but they did. And the thought came to me, this would be so easy if I saw what they saw. And then I asked myself, what do they see? Why do they love me? And that's when I um, hit on this practice, which was a profound turning point in my own practice. And I'd been practicing for 20 years by that point. So I I share this with you. Just try this. Close your eyes for a moment. And uh, bring to mind somebody who you really share a warm, loving connection with. And as you bring them to mind, you might have an image of them, and just feel that energy flow that you share, how sweet that is. We have this unique combination with each other person that's, that's quite singular. So there you are feeling that loving connection. And now for a moment, let your consciousness inhabit their reality and see if you can see from their vantage point why they love their friend so much. What are the different qualities that touch them about you? Take it all in, as one poet says, drink yourself in. Those shine through whether you realize it or not. Stay connected and then see if this person, their friend, is worthy of kindness and love. And as you see through their eyes, send yourself 
a bit of kind thoughts. May you really be happy and see all the goodness inside. And then let your consciousness float back to right inside your own body. And from the inside, stay connected to what your friend saw. And you can, again, either send it to yourself first person or second person. May I or may you, if you're talking to yourself that way, really be happy and see all the goodness and celebrate all the noble qualities. Notice how that feels. Okay, you can open your eyes gently. Now, if you weren't able to get in touch with that, don't give yourself a hard time. It's just where you are now. But if you were able to get even a glimpse, then as I like to say, the jig is up. You can't pretend that you don't have the capacity to love yourself. And then it's just a matter of remembering to see yourself from whatever vantage point helps you touch what your friends see. It's coming out of you anyway. You might think, oh, if they really knew me, you know, if everybody knew who I really am, they wouldn't. You're the one that's, that's not seeing what everybody else sees. You're living in your own delusion and not seeing the beauty or the goodness that touches others. It's so interesting, that paradox. And the more there you are feeling small, the more you block off all of those beautiful qualities. So it's a gift to everybody else to have that kindness towards yourself to really get who you are. So this is kindness towards yourself. And then as we go out into the world, seeing it in everybody, because your love, when it meets somebody else's, it just awakens that in them. And the way I think of it is, it's just love finding itself. It's just moving through our forms, but we can awaken it. Mayor Baba has this this great line. He says, love is essentially self-communicative. Those who don't have it catch it from those who have it. But it's not even that they catch it because it's there all the time. It's just that it gets awoken, awakened, and there it is. But it's simply love finding itself. And you seeing it And looking for it in others brings it out and wakes it up in them. The difference between the grasping mind, the want, the attached heart, and the meta-filled, expansive heart is a very thin line. It can switch in a moment. And that's the real paradox. We talk about the pain of love. You know, I remember there's this this French song, "Plaisir d'amour." You know, the the joy of love is but a moment long; the pain of love is but a whole life long. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? You know? 
That's not real love. That's the pain of attachment. And in just one moment, our loving heart can turn to grasping and become a source of pain. Here's a little, another little exercise just that you can take out into the world, especially when you're with your loved ones. Again, close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind somebody that you're very close with and that you, you really love, that you've got a very um, important and close connection. And first see them in a happy state, feeling your love. And notice what it's like to just wish them well. May you really be happy and may you feel my love for you. See them smiling, taking that in. Notice how it feels in your body, in your mind, and in your heart. And now for a moment, think of what it's like when you want something from them, when you hope they don't disappoint you or are afraid they did or will. Notice what that feels like inside, in the mind, in the heart, in the body. That wanting Okay, I won't leave you here. Take a breath. Erase the board. And one more time, see them in a happy state, feeling your love and your support. And just send them those thoughts. May you really be happy and feel my love for you. Where you don't want anything from them other than their own well-being. And notice how that feels. Notice the difference. In the body, in the mind, and in the heart. Okay. You can open your eyes if you like. You see the difference? That's the difference between grasping and non-grasping and kindness. The near enemy of metta attachment. So there's non-hatred or love or metta kindness towards ourselves, towards others. I want to mention one more piece and that is, it's a very important piece so I'm going to have to kind of jump through the, uh, the, the last part but I do want you to get this and that is how you feel about not just others, but about life and about the Dharma. That there's something in you that really has heard a deep call to this. And that's a love that is perhaps the most important of all. Your love of the truth. Many years ago, I was practicing, I was studying with, uh, with Ram Das, who was a, a real um, mentor of mine. And he was running this, uh, this class in New York City and it was for bhakti, more Hindu types, and I was a Buddhist. And it was, we were deciding whether it was gonna be 
appropriate for me to be in the class. And he said, uh, well, let me ask, uh, how do you feel about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I said, I like Jesus. He said, no, do you love Jesus? I said, well, I, I like Jesus and I love his teachings. I don't know if I love him the way you're thinking I should. And he said, okay, well, how about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? I said, I like Krishna. <laughs> the just expression of celebration. He said, no, do you love Krishna? I said, well, I, I, you know, I can't say I love Krishna. And then he said, uh, what about God? Do you love God? And I said, you know, Ramdas, um, I was raised in the Jewish religion like he was and I said I had this image of God with this big beard and a book and a pen saying you're going to have a good day and you're going to have a lousy day and instead of loving God it put the fear of God into me so I can't say I love God I can't say I even like God but uh, but I I, I appreciate people who love God. And I said, when I hear the word God, I translate it as dharma. The perfection of life, how everything in, is, is mysteriously part of this universe. And um, it blows me away. You know? And he said, do you love the dharma? And I said, oh yeah. He said, you're sure? I said, absolutely. And then he said, did you ever tell the Dharma that you loved it? <laughs> I said, no, no. He said, well, go ahead. I said, what are you talking about? He said, go ahead, say, I love you, Dharma. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I'll say it with you. Right. <laughs> go ahead, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I felt like a jerk. Okay, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said it. And after about three or four times, one time, I really felt it. I love you, Dharma. At which point, tears started flowing down my face. And he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. Um, (laughs) And I ended up doing the class. But I want to underscore that everybody in this room, in one way or another, loves, whether you call it the Dharma, or God, or the mystery, or the truth. Those are just names for that which is beyond name. They're all pointing to the unnameable, which is really what, at my understanding, the word God means in the Jewish religion. We all love the Dharma, don't miss that. And sometimes it doesn't feel juicy here, you know, when you're just sitting and watching your breath. This is a very juicy practice. And to get in touch with how much you love the truth or love life or love God or love the Dharma, however way you say it, this is what keeps the practice juicy and flowing. And that love turns into a deeper kind where it's not me and the Dharma or me and God, where it's just 
the love that comes from emptiness of any kind of separation. And this leads to non-delusion, which I just have a few moments for, and I'd love to get into it more. Non-delusion, which is really seeing clearly, not only being present and clear for what's here, but seeing the impersonal nature of this experience. That seeing what we take to be I is just a flow of life that is organized in a particular form called you. That you really do exist and you exist separately and if you get pinched, I don't feel it. So on one level, you do exist. There is a you. But on another level, on a deeper level, that fixed idea, that fixed static entity that we think of as me, to whom life is happening, is just a misperception. On another level, you are this flow of experience. And the meditation shows this quite directly. Every time you see, there's a thought and a sound and a sensation and the breath that you see this flow of life, this field of activity that's called you. And there's no one point in there that you can point to and say, this is me. You're continually changing experience. How many moods have you had today? How many thoughts? How many sensations? Which one can you point to and say, that's me? And in that, that understanding that on one level, I'm here, and another, it's just life playing with itself. That starts to see, cut through this sense of separation to the true deepest reality where it's not you running the show, it's not you making anything happen, it is life expressing itself through you or as you. There is the experience that we can, ex- that we can have and there's the awareness of the experience. And when we are seeing the awareness is just coming through us. Can you say, my awareness is better than your awareness? My pure awareness is better than your pure awareness. Can you shut your awareness off? Just for a moment, try, close your eyes and try to not be aware of my voice. Try to shut it out. Turn off that awareness. If it's yours, see if you can turn it off. Try to not be aware of something in this moment. Can you turn that off? It's just happening through you. Extraordinary. And when we can simply rest in the fact that life is happening in this amazing form that we've been blessed with as me, then there's the sense of freedom and connection with all of life. And then there's a quality of trust. We can trust in life.
uh, Einstein said perhaps the most important question a human being can ask is, is the universe friendly or not? And if we are understandably, and many of us are traumatized or feeling vigilant or, and feeling that we've got to protect ourselves, that's understandable. There's compassion for, and, and ways to work through that. But to see that the awareness is not tainted by any of that. The awareness of fear is not afraid. And the more we can open up to see that life is here for us to support us if we allow it, then we can come to open up more and more and rest and trust and surrender. That's the real letting go. And the more we can trust, then we can start to hear that, that exchange this morning about listening inside. It's all there. Life is speaking to us all the time. As, uh, as Ramda says in Be Here Now, the next message you hear will be the next message you hear. It's happening all the time. And the more we can stop the static or relax the fear, we can hear that wisdom inside that's guiding us all along. Then we can just learn to float and trust in life. I often think of this whole practice as going from flailing to floating. You know, when you first learn to swim and somebody says, go ahead, go in the water, just relax. And you're saying, relax, I'm going underneath here. And the more you start flailing about, the more you bob up and down. And then finally, you can realize, oh, treading, oh, this is a whole lot easier. And then there's the magic moment where you stop completely and you realize the water was there supporting you all along when you can trust enough to let yourself float. That's what we're learning more and more, to trust in life and to trust in that awareness. So I'll close just to know that every moment that you're mindful, you are transforming suffering into happiness with non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, generosity, kindness, clarity, wisdom. This is a, a beautiful poem I love that I'll just close about this mysterious awareness by Dana Falls. Awareness knowing itself. Settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. So let's sit for a moment.
nothing to do, nothing to make happen. Just allow life to move through you. Awareness knowing itself is embodiment. Just a couple of announcements before we go for the walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.